Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we talk about the new COVID vaccine. California health officials say doses are coming in this week after the CDC approved the redesigned booster, saying it will do two things, help restore our COVID defenses that have waned over time and protect against the newer, more infectious Omicron variants. We'll talk about who's eligible for the booster and when and get into the science of how this new combination vaccine is supposed to work. Join us with your questions after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Supplies of the redesigned and recently CDC-approved COVID boosters are coming into California this week. The new versions from Pfizer and Moderna are designed to protect against both the original virus strain and the Omicron subvariant circulating now. But who should get the booster and when and how much of a benefit will they provide? We're joined now by Stanford's Dr. Grace Lee, who is also chair of the CDC committee that voted overwhelmingly last Thursday in favor of recommending the booster. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Lee. So much for having me. So tell us what's new about this booster. Well, the boosters that we approved last week are um, updated bivalent boosters that would provide protection against um, the original SARS-CoV-2 variant, as well as currently circulating variants. So uh, we are seeing a lot of Omicron right now, or we have been for weeks to months at this point, and in particular targeting BA4 and BA5. Uh, The goal of this is not only to protect against current variants, but also to protect protect possibly against future variants that might emerge off of the more uh, currently circulating strains. Yeah. So talk about why it was important to the committee to make this booster available as soon as possible, to make it available now. Yeah, thanks for that question. So similar to what we've seen in the past, we've seen uh, winter surges as well as some summer surges. And uh, uh, as anticipated, we will, uh, well, we anticipate we will see another surge this winter. Mm -hmm. So the goal of getting these boosters out now is to offer the ability to protect um, individuals um, and communities uh, as soon as possible, because we know it takes time to get uh, vaccines into arms. It's not something that can happen instantaneously the moment we start to see the surge happening. So this is really in preparation and ensuring that we can provide the best possible protection during what we anticipate will be a winter surge this season. Yeah. And this winter surge is because people will be indoors more often. There's also going to be a flu strain circulating, so on. 
Thanks. There's um, seasonal uh, variations, certainly, of these vaccines. And um, while it has not yet settled into a flu-like pattern where we see uh, typically fall, winter, um, early spring uh, activity, uh, our, you know, we do anticipate that there will be yet another surge. The one thing with COVID is we know that we have not been able to uh, predict or sustain uh, those low levels of circulation for very long. Um, that is the case that as we open up more, we do anticipate variants will continue to emerge. And so this is our best guess at trying to make sure that we can provide the best possible and optimal protection to the population. Um, I just want to mention briefly that you mentioned the flu vaccine, which is also really important. Uh, we do anticipate, again, far more respiratory viral infections this season in general, mm. um, in part because many of the uh, policies that have limited the spread have really uh, come down in the past few months. And so uh, would just encourage families to go ahead and get your flu vaccine as well. We're talking with Dr. Grace Lee about the new vaccine. Dr. Lee is Associate Chief Medical Officer for Practice Innovation and Pediatric Infectious Diseases Physician at Stanford Children's Health. So these updated booster shots that are made by Pfizer, Pfizer-BioNTech, and then also by Moderna, but they have different eligibility. Can you talk about those differences? Uh, the main difference to know about is really the age. So the bivalent Moderna booster dose is now recommended in people ages 18 years and older. And the bivalent Pfizer-BioNTech booster dose um, is now recommended for people 12 years and older. And so does that mean that the rollout is also going to make the the booster shots available to those demographics before it's been you know you have to be 50 and older for example yeah correct it, it is going to be available for um really everyone 12 and older with uh, product specific uh, recommendations or authorizations okay. based on age um, yes, and it, it is to replace all prior booster recommendations for those age groups. So um, we will no longer be, pro after the primary series, the goal is to ensure that people are provided protection with the most updated vaccine available, and that would be this bivalent booster that contains uh, some of the original strains um, uh, that was included in the monovalent vaccine, as well as the Omicron BA4, BA5 strains. Well, we've already got some questions coming in, and let me remind listeners that you, if you have questions about this bivalent vaccine, timing of doses, things like that for Dr. Lee, you can ask them by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or by giving us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Ibru asks, how much time is recommended between the second booster and the new booster? Yeah, thanks for this question. So the FDA authorized a minimum of two months uh, between the last vaccine dose that was received and the current updated bivalent booster. Um, so what that means is that um, at least two months have, have to have elapsed since. Uh, I would say that from a clinical standpoint, and this came up at the meeting, uh, we do uh, also are now recommending that if you had just recently gotten infected in the last week, uh, of course, we don't want people to go to vaccination centers or clinics uh, if they are actively infected. Um, but my personal recommendation and the CDC uh, clinical considerations and guidance also endorses waiting at least three months from a prior known infection associated with COVID-19. 
What about three months also from the booster shot, if you just got it? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think it's very context dependent, you know, for the average individual who is otherwise healthy, that would be my recommendation just to keep it simple. So three months from your last infection or your last uh, booster dose. However, there are some circumstances where you can imagine that a shorter interval would be helpful. And in particular, if you're immunocompromised, if you're an older adult who just, you know, two months ago got your uh, second booster because you were eligible due to risk, um, it might make sense to go ahead and ensure that you are protected ahead of the surge. Uh, those two uh, groups would be uh, two groups where it would make a lot of sense. The other context or situation where it might be helpful is if, you know, we start to see the surge coming earlier than anticipated. So I can imagine some people might be waiting, but there's no perfect time. The perfect time really is when you can optimize your protection. So that might also push folks to get it sooner. I see. How do you know that the new booster is safe? I understand that these shots were cleared without any data from clinical trials. Yeah, so similar to the flu vaccine program, where we typically are um, looking at the circulating strains in other parts of the world and um, making our best prediction about how to protect populations each season. Um, the mRNA vaccines or the COVID-19 vaccines are really moving in that direction where we anticipate we will be um, wanting to predict and optimally protect populations each season. And I hope it's only a winter season and not a winter and summer season, but each season. Um, so this is no different than the approach we've taken with flu vaccines. I think that's really important to state. Um, the other point I'd make is that this uh, vaccine or these sets of vaccines have been under the most intensive vaccine safety surveillance in the history of the US vaccination program with over you know, 600 million doses administered um, and uh, really uh, uh, strong surveillance around vaccine safety issues. And we have found um, uh, issues that have come up uh, and made sure that we're making, we're making sure that we are transparent and communicating the benefit risk balance. Um, the committee had all of this information, understanding uh, both the benefits and the risks. Um, and with that still felt very strongly uh, and wanted to endorse the uh, bivalent booster vaccines as the best way to protect the population. Yeah, there is some evidence out there that they're relying on related to bivalent uh, boosters. Uh, yes. So there have been, um, you know, for example, studies with boosters that were developed earlier on with BA1 um, or with uh, beta variants and uh, similar to what we've seen in our experience uh, with the uh, original uh, vaccines, uh, the safety and the benefit profile, and particularly the immunogenicity, has looked very similar. Uh, so while each season we don't anticipate, you know, 40 to 50,000 people would be enrolled in a trial, by the time that trial finished, um, we would miss the window of protection. Um, again, it's relying on the approach that we've used for flu, which is making sure that we have a good understanding about the safety, immunogenicity, and effectiveness of vaccines currently, and then making sure that we are updating those vaccines with the appropriate strains that we anticipate will be circulating that season. Well, this is rights. To what extent could the new vaccine decrease community transmission in addition to keeping people out of the hospital, meaning in addition to preventing severe illness, which we've always been told, uh, right, from folks is that vaccines don't prevent infection, but they 
prevent severe disease and death. But to what extent could this new vaccine decrease community transmission? Well, certainly what we've seen in past data is that in the first few months after a recent vaccine dose, uh, there, is, there are reductions in symptomatic infection associated with vaccination. So um, while the strategy has been to continue to protect those who are most vulnerable against severe disease, hospitalizations, and deaths, um, there are many of us who get vaccinated because we don't want to get COVID-19 because it's very impactful to our lives and our, and our families' lives. Um, I'll give the example that, you know, for myself and for my family, including my kids, you know, we receive the flu vaccine every year, uh, not because I'm particularly concerned that I am at high risk for severe disease or complications. However, I don't want to get the flu. It's the same with COVID-19 for our family. We're talking with Dr. Grace Lee, a member of the U.S. Advisory Committee on Immunization, Immunization Practices and the COVID-19 Vaccines Workgroup, chair of the committee of the CDC that recommended the new booster, which is what we're talking about, the newly authorized COVID vaccine reformulated to better protect against the Omicron variants, as well as protecting against the original strain. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What are your questions about the vaccine or about what it's designed to do? Do you have questions about how the new vaccine will work for you based on your own history with the virus or vaccines? You can email forum at kqed.org. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum, and we'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. We'll meet California's new EPA secretary, Emilia Yana Garcia Gonzalez. State lawmakers have passed aggressive measures to address climate change that Governor Newsom is expected to sign. And Yana Garcia will talk about how the agency plans to implement them. And we want you to tell us how Cal EPA could better serve you and your community. 
That's tomorrow. Today, we're talking about the newly authorized COVID vaccine with Dr. Grace Lee of Stanford, also chair of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice at the CDC that recommended the booster, a pediatric infectious diseases physician at Stanford. You, our listeners, are with us with your questions. And I actually want to bring into the conversation now Dr. Mahul Suthar, Associate Professor of Pediatrics and a member of the Emory Vaccine Center at Emory University. Mahul Sudhar, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. I want to just dig into the science a little bit about how our immune systems are expected to respond to this newly reformulated vaccine. It's the first update to the COVID-19 vaccine since the original a combination booster. But if you could start, uh, Mahul, by just explaining to us kind of in broad terms, what's generally supposed to happen in our bodies after a vaccine or exposure to a virus? Sure. So one of the things that happens is that our immune system responds to this foreign pathogen, whether it be a virus or a vaccine, which mimics some of the parts of the the virus uh, that we're trying to drive an immune response to. In this case, it's that spike protein, right? And so what happens is that you end up generating antibodies. Uh, these are called, these can be in a variety of different fashions. One is neutralizing antibodies. These antibodies are the ones that particularly bind to, in this context of SARS-CoV-2, the spike protein, which can block its ability to attach to that ACE2 receptor. Other things that can form are T-cell responses, CD4 and CD8 T-cell. There's many different varieties of these as well. Uh, but ultimately, one of the things that we want to be able to do with vaccines is to drive uh, memory responses that can help protect against subsequent infections. So you want to have memory B cells, long lived plasma cells, or memory CD4 and CD8 T cell responses. During SARS-CoV-2 infection, we see many of these same types of responses happen. Uh, and that's why generally people are protected against reinfection with similar viral strains. So why then has there been a lot of talk about how your, basically your first brush with coronavirus will be how your body responds and could actually affect how a booster, a a new booster works in your system? Yeah, so this comes from uh, an old concept called original antigenic sin, which I like to term uh, immunological imprinting, uh, which essentially means that your exposure to this first uh, virus, whether it be SARS-CoV-2, is preferentially recalled upon a second exposure. In other words, the antibodies producing that first exposure are the ones that are preferentially recalled during that second exposure of a a related uh, viral strain. And so one of the thoughts with SARS-CoV-2 is that uh, with the original vaccine strain is that we were able to generate really nice antibodies uh, to that spike protein. And so uh, now we have variants that have emerged with many different mutations in that spike protein. And so uh, there's a need to be able to try to generate antibodies that can help uh, protect us against these newly emerging variants. One of the thoughts is that uh, are these antibodies that are generated during the first uh, vaccination, are they gonna cloud our ability to be able to generate new antibodies? Uh, uh, And certainly I think what we have seen is that um, 
there is, uh, in some of the clinical trial studies, there is a slight advantage when bivalent vaccines uh, were given uh, to responding to that Omicron uh, variant. Uh, but the hope is that we're able to, by including a bivalent vaccine, broaden our antibody response uh, so that we are able to fight off these subsequent uh, emerging variants. Dr. Lee, where do you fall on this in terms of how much benefit the new boosters offer, whether it will be effective against new variants if you had the original vaccine or were infected by a different strain of the COVID virus? Um, well, you know, I think that what we've seen is the uh, two things. So one is, I think there's this concept that has been discussed around hybrid immunity. So individuals who've been vaccinated and never been infected, individuals who have been both vaccinated and infected. Um, what I can say is that it makes a lot of sense to me to go ahead and um, uh, try and broaden one's protection by receiving this bivalent booster. So if you haven't yet seen Omicron, um, you would greatly benefit from receiving a vaccine that contains the Omicron variant because we know that the original monovalent vaccines, while they can offer protection, it tends to be shorter lived. Um, and we are many months out from uh, our original sort of vaccine or primary series for most of the population. So adding in this Omicron strain that is targeting um, currently circulating variants will give us the best possible chance to broaden that immune response overall and give us protection through this season. Uh, we'll have to see what the future holds, but but you know, that's uh, why the committee felt strongly about making this available to the population. Well, let me go to caller Daphne in Berkeley. Hi, Daphne. Hi, thank you. Um, yeah, so you were just talking about the issue that's concerning me. Um, I'm 65. Um, I got both vaccines. I got boosted. And then at the very end of May, right on Memorial Day, I got COVID. So that was Omicron 2, I think. And I got Paxlovid, so I had a very mild case, and I'm not sure how much of an immune response. I felt like I had a cold. But anyway, so I'm going to Alaska on Saturday and I'll be with a group so we'll be eating indoors because it's cold and have not been eating indoors here. And in fact, the one time I was at a retreat and took my mask off is when I got on the con. So my question is though, since I just had it three months ago and I've heard you should wait three to six months after an infection, should I get it now or should I wait? Mm. Dr. Lee? Yeah, thank you. So first, I'll just, you know, um, say that I'm glad you only felt like you had a cold. That's really good news. So uh, clearly, your body had remembered and was able to protect itself, even though you did develop symptomatic infection. Um, the second thing I would say is that we uh, are seeing or we have seen people who have gotten BA1, BA2 early on in the larger Omicron wave, um, have gone on to get BA4, BA5. And so it's not perfect protection by any means. And if you look at the um, antigenic distance, um, they are somewhat separated. So I do think you would benefit from a, a BA4, BA5 containing uh, Omicron vaccine. Um, so I would, I would, you know, personally suggest that. The other thing is, it's been, it's at least been at least three months since your prior infection. Uh, so again, while we feel that following um, infection, people are generally optimally protected for those few months, uh, infection um, mediated immunity also starts to wane. So both. Because 
because it's a different variant circulating now and because it's been some time since your last infection, uh, I would suggest uh, it would be probably beneficial, especially if you're traveling, uh, to go ahead and get the vaccine. And also, just when you're traveling and you're enjoying this um, event, you don't want to get sick while you're there and have to <laughs> stay inside. Mahul, listening to Daphne talk about how she was vaccinated, then boosted, then got COVID three months ago. Again, glad as well that it was a mild case for Daphne. Reminds me of this concept that has been likened to a learning curve, meaning that we're all on a different place on that curve based on how and Mm -hmm. when we were exposed to the virus through vaccine, through whatever. And that in many ways it does and, and can affect with respect to COVID um, how we would respond to boosters. Is this, how meaningful is this, I guess, is my question. Yeah, so this, uh, as Grace mentioned, there's several varieties of uh, individual that have now sort of been exposed to either infection or vaccination or a combination, right? You have individuals that, some individuals, I recently just heard about this, have have sort of been under a rock and sort of have never been exposed or uh, to, or been vaccinated. To, to SARS-CoV-2. Others that have been vaccinated have gone through the regimen of primary series boosted, uh, and then others that have gotten infected, and then a combination of those uh, hybrid individuals that sort of have been infected and vaccinated or vaccinated and infected. Those individuals uh, tend to have really good uh, immune responses. And what do I mean by this? Uh, we know that from infection-induced immunity, you can have a really broad CD4 and CD8 T cell response. Uh, this covers uh, parts of the vaccine that are not covered, right? So you have your non-structural mm-hmm. proteins and other viral proteins that are covered during an infection that the vaccine alone doesn't provide. And then uh, we know from several studies that infection-induced immunity is really durable. It lasts for a very long time. And so a combination of these will be found is that those individuals tend to have really high magnitude and antibody responses and neutralizing antibody responses. And they tend to fare much better than individuals that have just been vaccinated in terms of durability. So if we're looking for how long will I, my immune response last, and I think this sort of gets to your caller's question about, you know, how long will I be protected? You know, will I be at risk? Um, I would say that if you're been vaccinated, you followed know, the vaccine series, the boosting, and then uh, you accidentally got infected or exposed to infection, uh, you may actually have a really good immune response. And so still boosting with the bivalent booster will certainly help tailor your immune response better towards that Omicron variant. Uh, And again, will protect you against hospitalization, severe disease, and, and death. Uh, Dr. Lee, we have another sort of travel-related question, though. This one is slightly different. Russell writes, I'm planning a trip from California to New York and heard that it might be wise to plan my booster shot so it's maximally effective during my trip while I'm most at risk in airports, restaurants, while flying. How long after receiving the booster shot is it most effective? Yeah, so typically uh, throughout the pandemic with all the vaccines, we've been saying approximately two weeks after your last dose, you're probably maximally protected. Um, You probably still have some protection before then, uh, but if you want to be sure that you are um, optimally protected at the time that you're going to be exposed or your exposure risk is the greatest, it does make sense approximately two weeks before to try and get that done. 
of course, timing will never be perfect. It won't work if you get it too late. So um, just getting it at all is probably the right thing to do. David writes, given that the increased immunity from a booster wanes after three months or so, is there much benefit to taking the shot? You are protected for three months, but after that, it seems you are back to where you started. Or do I have this wrong? This seems like a good one for you, Mahul. Yeah, so what we have seen is that after uh, the boosters, you do get uh, waning of that uh, neutralizing antibody response, as well as some binding antibodies. What we do know is that that T cell response is uh, fairly durable. And those CD8 T cells and CD4 T cells are important for protecting against uh, infection. But it's also equally important to, to get this bivalent booster because, again, you want to be able to broaden your immune response. You want to be able to provide your, uh, yourself, your immune system, with the best possible way of fighting off uh, a possible exposure. And what we do know is that when your antibody titers tend to go down below a certain threshold, and this Omicron variant has, has developed many ways, and we've seen several different sub-variants uh, within the spike protein to sort of evade the antibody response that our vaccines are trying to generate, um, you can get infected. And I'm sure many of us want to be protected against mild, moderate, severe disease. And I think these bivalent boosters uh, will provide us with yet another tool uh, to be able to, to ward off against these infections. Again, Mahul Suthar is an immunologist and virologist, an associate professor of pediatrics, a member of the Emory Vaccine Center at Emory University. Dr. Grace Lee is associate chief medical officer for practice innovation and pediatric infectious diseases physician at Stanford Children's Health. And uh, let me go to another question. This is from John who writes, why is the original strain of SARS-CoV-2 included in the booster? Hasn't it mutated itself out of circulation, Dr. Lee? Yes, thanks for that question. So um, if we could predict the future, it would be really easy because we would just generate the vaccines that are needed to protect us against future variants. Um, you know, I, I, while we anticipate that uh, given the majority of circulating strains now, over 80 to close to 90% of the strains are really BA5 in the moment. Uh, we've also learned over time that these variants evolve pretty quickly uh, and they can uh, you know, vary away from the uh, uh, what we're trying to protect against. So my long way of saying, uh, yes, uh, it includes the original strain uh, with good reason. It tends to be uh, closer to some of the other variants that we've seen in the past. Uh, then the BA4.5. The BA4.5 is what has emerged and what we have to deal with predominantly this season. Um, however, we don't want to lose the memory of that protection and we want to be able to boost and make that more durable for the original strain as well, uh, because there are other variants that may come off that original strain where we want to make sure we are optimizing the protection for future variants. So it's a little bit of a you know half and half on purpose so that we can boost the original immunity while also broadening that immunity to include BA4 or 5. Well, Katie writes, as to the CDC committee that approved this new booster rollout, can you speak to what were the reasons for any no votes? Dr. Lee, my understanding is that there was one no vote on the CDC committee. This was from Dr. Pablo Sanchez, who was basically saying that the decision to recommend the new booster was premature, at least in the quotes that I saw um, in articles, that it was premature because it was without 
human data. I wonder if you have any thoughts for Katie into the reason for this no vote, and maybe even from other committee members who did suggest that they struggled with a vaccine that has no clinical data in light of vaccine hesitancy that might exist in their communities. Yes, thanks so much for that question. So, you know, one thing I want to emphasize and what I really appreciate about our committee members is their willingness to express their opinions and that, um, you know, the CDC enables this transparent process of decision making. So you're seeing all of us struggle in the moment <laughs> during those meetings with some of these decisions. Um, if we had perfect data, the decision would actually be quite easy. Um, and I think, uh, you know, part of the challenge is, is that we always have less than perfect data. We always want more information because that would give us great confidence. Uh, we do have, uh, we are always dealing with uncertainty every time we make a decision and we have to make our best possible judgments in those moments. So. Um, when people are voting no, the rationale that was expressed at that time was really around making sure we had more data, which all of us agree with. We all want more information, more data, um, more testing, and all of that would make us uh, feel more uh, confident um, in our decision making. Um, that said, uh, by not making a decision or by waiting too long, that is a decision in and of itself. And so we have to reflect the uncertainties that are in front of us in the moment with what would happen if we didn't make a decision or if we waited for that perfect data. And I think all of us, um, uh, including Dr. Sanchez, uh, are worried about a winter surge. And all of us, including Dr. Sanchez, want to make sure that we are protecting as many of our loved ones as possible uh, during uh, what we anticipate will be a significant winter surge. So for those reasons, I think, despite the uncertainties, the overwhelming majority of committee members uh, felt that uh, we had to move forward and make a make a decision and make a choice, and that uh, waiting for more information uh, would mean that we would miss the opportunity to protect a lot of people uh, from being hospitalized or from dying this winter due to um, you know inc uh, protection that was not sufficient uh, to keep them out of the hospital, for example. Well, Nikki writes, as an older person who got both Moderna vaccines and both Moderna boosters as soon as they are available, I feel less confident with this new vaccine. I feel like waiting to see what happens and if it seems safe to take it a few weeks before Thanksgiving. So my immunity is high for that important event. Do you know when the first real clinical trial data will come out, uh, Dr. Lee? Um, so our understanding from the companies were that they were uh, those trials were ongoing in the moment. So I'll give an example. In the, in we the have about 10 seconds. Maybe we'll have you give that example right after this break. Stay with us, listeners. You're listening to Forum. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. 
Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the newly authorized COVID vaccine that's supposed to roll out in California. Appointments are already being accepted for it. We're learning about how our immune system responds to the COVID vaccine generally and how our immune systems might also respond to a vaccine like this, a combination bivalent vaccine with Dr. Grace Lee of Stanford and Mahul Suthar of Emory University. You, our listeners, are also weighing in. And just before the break, Dr. Lee, I interrupted you. You were talking about an example you were going to give related to clinical trials and data. Uh, sure. Thank you. Well, so, um, you know, again, I'll just emphasize that we've had two years and 600 million doses of experience with the mRNA vaccines. Uh, and uh, there have been additional tri- clinical trials that have been done specifically uh, with earlier formulations. So uh, earlier this year, uh, for example, Moderna was uh, c- conducted a clinical trial specifically with the Omicron BA1 vaccine looking at immunogenicity and safety. Uh, and, you know, uh, as anticipated, uh, we got a better immune response to the variant being targeted uh, in that com- uh, combination vaccine or that bivalent vaccine. Um, and there were no additional safety concerns identified. So um, this is a formulation that just replaces that strain with the BA4, BA5 variants. And so we don't anticipate that there would be anything very different. Of course, we are always going to want more information. That said, similar to what I mentioned before, um, the COVID-19 vaccines have undergone the most rigorous and robust uh, vaccine safety surveillance in the history of our country, to be honest. Um, And similarly, there is ongoing surveillance for the effectiveness of these vaccines, um, uh, similar to what we see with flu every year. And so we do anticipate that more data will be forthcoming. um, And, uh, you know, the the challenge we have <laughs> is that we can't predict the future always perfectly, um, but it's important to remember that we are continuously monitoring uh, both the effectiveness and the safety of these vaccines over time, uh, and that we hope that this can support people in feeling confident about their decisions. Well, let me go to Paul in Novato. Hi, Paul. Hi. Um, adding to that point, um, I understand that ACIT is the voting body on on vaccine approval or adding it to the childhood um, schedule. I just want to know, um, years ago when the initial um, COVID vaccine was being developed, there was a voting member who had a concern about myocarditis. And I know that that seems to be a common adverse event. And I'm wondering how that's being monitored and considered during the new approvals. Um, yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'll just jump in and go ahead. And go right ahead, Dr. Lee. <laughs> um, so uh, at every meeting and almost every meeting, and I'll tell you at the meeting last week, we actually had a review of, again, this question about myocarditis. And so um, this is an adverse event um, where we have been tracking very carefully uh, the rates of myocarditis in multiple systems. So uh, last week we saw data from VAERS, which is our National Passive Safety um, Surveillance Reporting System. Uh, that was reported out, as well as from the Vaccine Safety Data Link. Uh, Again, um, uh, national vaccine safety surveillance for the population, and both are actively uh, being monitored over time. Uh, In addition, there is a program called vSafe, where uh, individuals can actually, uh, through uh, text messaging, can uh, 
provide information about vaccine safety or any events that occur following vaccination uh, directly to the CDC. And that's actually also been incredibly helpful and in particularly around the safety uh, following vaccination in pregnant women. So all of these systems are still in place. Um, all of those systems are active and live and they are uh, essentially monitoring on a weekly basis um, anything that can occur. And so uh, everything is about benefit risk balance and we are always considering um, everything about what we understand about the burden of disease as well as the potential risks. Is wondering for kids under 12, you were mentioning that kids 12 and older will be able to get the new Pfizer booster. When would it be available to them? Um, I will defer to the <laughs> my colleagues at the FDA um, <laughs> because I think the data has to get submitted to the FDA for uh, review and authorization by the FDA. And if the FDA does authorize that, um, you know, I think that would be part of the larger booster strategy that's being discussed. Yeah, surely the timeline, though, uh, I understand that it has to go through the FDA, but surely the timeline will be much faster than the original vaccine and so on, right, given everything that we know at this point? Yeah, you highlight a great point, which is <laughs> for anyone who has kids under the age of 12, we have been waiting too long to have vaccines available to offer protection to the to our youngest, and especially since they've been in school and doing all other activities. Um, so yes, uh, I feel the um, urgency that you mentioned, and you know, our hope is that um, the uh, companies and others also feel that same urgency. I know the FDA has been working tirelessly throughout this pandemic. Um, to provide a, a careful review on safety, immunogenicity, and efficacy throughout. So um, I don't doubt that they will, it, if and when they get that information, I am confident that they will review that in a uh, thorough and robust manner as quickly as possible. Well, Heather writes, and again, let me remind listeners, if you want to post comments, you can do that on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can email forum at kqed.org or call us at 866-733-6786. Heather writes, two of my children and I had a mean COVID back in May, but my partner and my oldest son did not get sick despite living together in our small house. However, after several other exposures, both recently finally fell. Those of us who had COVID in May did not get sick. My question is, did this recent exposure activate and thus boost my son's and my own immunity? And if this exposure activated our immune systems, when should we next get boosted? Let me go to you on that first question, Mahul, uh, did this recent exposure activate and thus boost my son's and my own immunity? It, it's entirely possible that it has. Uh, so dose is always important. So if, uh, one got a high dose of virus, it'll activate your immune system. It's enough to reach a threshold where uh, your immune response, know that there's a pathogen infection and a recall response that generated, ended up getting a, a really nice memory response. Um, at a low dose, that may not be enough to, to drive that activation and that recall response. Um, it's hard to say without uh, analyzing samples to really know uh, whether you actually had uh, a recall response. Yeah. Given that they probably won't go through that whole analysis, Dr. Lee, should they? when should they next get boosted, Heather wants to know? Mm, you know, I really like what Dr. Sitar mentioned about um, sort of understanding what the dose is. What we did see early in the pandemic that those with asymptomatic infections, uh, their immune response seemed to wane more quickly and those with severe infections had a really robust immune response. Um, so it's hard to predict and we don't have any way and I wish I did. Um, 
But what I would say is, is that if it's been more than three months since your uh, most recent infection or your vaccine, it seems reasonable to get, again, with the caveats that if you're immunocompromised or an older adult at higher risk for severe complications, you might want to narrow that window down to two months. Speaking of which, uh, Mahul, if you are immunocompromised, are there special considerations you should take into account in terms of response and and I guess ultimately timing, but what are some things that might be useful to know in terms of different responses for those who are immunocompromised? So those who are immunocompromised can be uh, immunodeficient for a number of different reasons, whether it be B-cell therapies or T-cell therapies. And so uh, one of the considerations that uh, has been given is to uh, talk to your doctor about when you should be receiving these booster doses, uh, how frequently. Uh, I don't think there are any definitive ways in the clinic right now to be able to say this is your level of your spike antibodies, which would be great if we could have access to something like that, where we could know what our risk is, uh, depending on the level of our uh, spike neutralizing antibodies uh, uh, after a vaccination. Um, But I think you should also, uh, along with not only vaccination, also continue to practice uh, other measures of trying to prevent or reduce your risk of exposure, including uh, continuing uh, to wear masks, uh, physical distancing, asking those around you if they've been vaccinated and sort of uh, ensuring that uh, when you do gather indoors, uh, that you sort of reduced your risk or your chances of an exposure. Um, That would probably be my best recommendation uh, for immunocompromised individuals. Let me go to caller Bill in Daly City. Hi, Bill. Hey, good morning. Uh, I'm 78. Uh, I took the two original Moderna uh, vaccinations. I've had the two Moderna boosters. Is it recommended that I get this new covariant booster? Mm. After basically four shots, Dr. Lee. Yes, we are now recommending that the bivalent booster replaces all prior monovalent boosters going forward. Uh, So we're no longer really counting the booster doses. Um, What we're trying to focus on is how can we protect people in the best possible way for the upcoming season. And so, yes, the recommendation is to go ahead and get a bivalent booster dose um, if it's been at least two months from your last booster dose. And Sonia writes, what are your thoughts about the sequencing of flu shots and booster shots? Is the flu shot available yet? So can you get them at the same time (laughs) to save people the trips? Yes. Um, I I will say that uh, there. uh, So first of all, um, the clinical guidance uh, clearly states that co-administration of flu and COVID-19 vaccines is uh, perfectly acceptable. And in fact, if it makes it easier for you to stay uh, protected throughout the season, it makes a lot of sense. I will say um, as a busy parent, it is sometimes hard to go back multiple times to get these things done. Uh, so for me, it's really a matter of convenience and just making sure that I can um, you know, coach my kids through the anticipated side effects that they're going to have with um, any shot. And uh, Lauren writes, will there be a recommendation to get these boosters every four months? Also, it would be so helpful if there was some sort of questionnaire, CDC questionnaire that you could fill out with your particular circumstances and it could tell you whether you are recommended to get a booster or not. Is that something that exists? Uh, Dr. Lee, quickly, uh, your your thoughts on Lauren's question or if that's even in the works? 
And we I have to take it one month at a time with COVID. <laughs> Every time I think uh, the emergency is over, it, uh, something else uh, comes our way. So um, it's really difficult for us to say, but I am hopeful we can fall into a regular pattern similar to what we've uh, seen with flu, uh, but time will tell. Um, and just a really quick response to the CDC uh, uh, questions. There actually is a booster tool on the CDC website where you can put in your specific information and that will provide guidance because it has become very complex and we're trying to make it easier to help people to do the right thing. So uh, please go ahead, and I'm happy to send that uh, separately to you, Mina. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Uh, I should also let listeners, remind listeners that you are listening to Forum, and I'm Mina Kim. Dr. Grace Lee is a member of the U.S. Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, a member of the COVID-19 Vaccines Workgroup, and Dr. Mehul Stuthar is an immunologist and virologist, an associate professor of pediatrics and member of the Emory Vaccine Center at Emory University. Now, could we get that specific as time goes on where we are basically tailoring people's practices to sort of their history and experiences with with COVID? Yeah, I think um, it's a fantastic question. Uh, again, I think if there was a way for us to be able to know what our spike antibodies are, I think that would be great for understanding risk. We know that neutralizing or even spike binding antibodies correlate really well with protection, even though immune correlates of protection are not well uh, completely defined yet. We know that individuals with high neutralizing antibodies tend to be uh, better protected. But I think there's also um, another factor of the kind of variants that have emerged, the kinds of exposures that you've had uh, in the past. Um, that I think do end up complicating things uh, over time. But I think uh, what I'm hoping for is that, uh, and I agree with you, caller, having to have these vaccine boosters every four months is not an ideal uh, situation. I'm hoping that we can get into a more regular pattern, uh, hopefully something that's uh, once a year, something that is paired with the flu vaccination as well. Um, but I think only time will tell, uh, we are hoping uh, let's hope at least that there's not another new uh, different variant uh, that emerges uh, this fall. And I think it'll help set the tone for will we see a more regular pattern uh, with these coronavirus infections. Mehul, what can you tell us about people who've never contracted COVID? Yeah, I, think I think there are studies right underway to see what we can learn from that. <laughs> yeah, I think there are a few groups that are trying to track these individuals uh, there's certainly healthcare workers that uh, during the initial uh, phase of the pandemic, uh, some of them didn't wear masks. Some of these nurses didn't wear masks when they had to comfort uh, these patients that uh, were severely uh, ill with SARS-CoV-2. And those individuals uh, never were infected, nor did they mount an antibody response, something that is a surrogate for did you get infected? And I think there are studies underway to try to understand what is uh, unique about these individuals uh, that's protecting them uh, from infection. Uh, and there could be a number of uh, reasons why it could be certain factors that the virus uses to infect uh, and establish an infection, uh, maybe slightly different in those individuals that the virus can't uh, establish an infection, or it could be something totally different, uh, their metabolic state, their baseline immune state, that's helping drive a very quick immune response to the virus so that it doesn't allow it uh, to really gain uh, uh, a foothold. Uh, 
Uh, and so I think understanding and looking at these individuals a little bit more closely will be very fascinating to see what are those factors that are, are protecting them. Could you weigh in on Lori's question here, Mahul, as well? Lori writes, my question is about the immune response that one gets from an infection followed by Paxlovid. Would that immune response that weakens the infection produce as good a response as a full infection? Uh, that's a great question. I think there's certainly studies underway uh, to better understand uh, the impact that Paxlovid has on these recall responses. How well did, uh, if you've been vaccinated, boosted, and then you get exposed to, to the Omicron variant, is your immune system able to generate the Omicron-specific uh, response? Uh, if you didn't take Paxlovid, if you took Paxlovid, is that response dampened? I think that's something that we need to understand better. And certainly, I think we've seen uh, rebound cases where individuals have taken Paxlovid, and a week or two later, after they've tested negative or they have, are no longer symptomatic, uh, you get uh, another round of infections uh, from likely an incomplete uh, uh, warding off of the virus. Uh, and so trying to understand the immune response in those individuals is also equally uh, very important. I wish we had more information, more data on this, uh, but some of these studies take time. Uh, these are things that sort of happen uh, in the process of a pandemic. Uh, and there's certainly groups that are trying to look at this more carefully. Yeah. Dr. Lee, just finally, we are getting a lot of people wanting to reiterate the timing around the booster question. Do you mind just going over the CDC recommendation one more time about how long to wait uh, after a booster shot, a previous booster shot or a previous infection to get this new booster shot? Sure. So the FDA authorization and the CDC recommendation recommends a, an updated bivalent booster this season, at least two months from your prior vaccine dose. Um, in addition, in our clinical guidance that's offered um, as accompanies the recommendation uh, for individuals who've been recently infected, uh, uh, there are situations where it would make sense to wait approximately three months after your most recent infection uh, before you receive the dose. Um, in those same clinical uh, guidance documents, uh, we do and want to make sure that we are providing timely protection to our oldest adults to those who are immunocompromised or th who those who anticipate they're going through a period of high risk. And so, you know, that three months is not a firm three months. It can be shorter than that. Dr. Gracely, Dr. Mahosuthar, thank you to both of you for your insights. And also, listeners, our CDC booster tool, the booster eligibility tool, is on our website. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. 
even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You'll have to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.